0: I felt like maybe I wasn't being the dad that I should be or getting a chance to do that because I had to take care of all the other things that were going on in our life. And Megan was feeling like, hey, I wanna leave. I wanna go home and see the dog and I don't wanna be here 24 seven. And so we had to find that balance.
1: Hello, you're listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host Madeline Cheney And today we have a very special conversation with three dads of medically complex children all about their experiences, how they've processed things, and advice for other dads in the community. As far as our metrics can tell us, dads make up roughly one-fifth of our audience, not including the ones that listen in on their partner's phones to the occasional episode. And I know that that is happening I get many messages in my inbox mentioning the, honey, you need to hear this moments of the episode listening, (laughs) and we love that because pretty much everything we talk about on the podcast is universal, if not all of it. We all experience it regardless of role in the family, but today's episode is a chance to hear from the dad's perspectives, both the things they experienced alongside their partners as well as things that they have experienced differently than them. This episode is a celebration of all the awesome dads in our lives that love these kids with all their hearts and muddle their way through really tricky waters alongside us moms, whether that be in a co-parent situation or a more traditional one. To sum up, although every episode is for the dads as much as for the moms, I hope every dad listening today feels extra loved, extra appreciated, and extra seen. Each of the three dads in today's conversation was volunteered by their partners, which I think is kind of funny and pretty typical, or at least in our family dynamic. Zach Schneider was volunteered by his wife, Megan, who is a delight and a longtime and loyal listener of The Rare Life. Thanks, Megan. You'll hear from her in a couple of weeks in an episode of Another Topic. Zach is also a listener of the podcast, from what I can tell in a honey-come-here-this kind of way, which makes me so happy. He works in marketing and is also a television hockey announcer. He, Megan, and their two-year-old Emmy live in Minnesota. Zach is a lover of golfing and of their two dogs, Hobie and Huck. Also joining us in today's conversation is Derek Disney, volunteered by his partner and past guest of The Rare Life, Haley, who was in episode 117 about traumaversaries. Derek works as a procurement manager for a state agency. He and Haley live in Salem, Oregon, with his three kiddos, including their three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Juniper, who you'll hear lots about. He is a lover of being outdoors and of his Melly sweatshirt, which apparently has a cult following, and now I'm wondering if I need one, so thanks a lot, Derek. The third dad today, who was volunteered by his partner, is Justin, my husband. Unlike me, he has a reputation for not talking just for the sake of talking, and when he does have something to say, people listen. And I love that about him. He's also a very private person, so his agreeing to join this conversation was an act of true love. Thanks, Jay. Justin does a lot of tech behind the scenes for The Rare Life, including the website and releasing episodes, which we are all very grateful for. For his day job, he is a software engineer. He lives with me and our two kiddos, Wendy and Kimball, here in Utah. He is a lover of disc golfing and of chocolate cream pies. Before we get to the conversation, we need to talk about the fundraiser again, because the funds we gather are what make episodes like today's possible. A quick refresh in case you haven't heard yet or have forgotten, our biggest fundraiser of the year kicks off in two weeks, February the 15th, and it ends the last day of the month on Rare Disease Day, the 29th. During those two weeks, we ask you to invite your friends, your family members, your neighbors, your Facebook followers, your colleagues at work to support you by supporting The Rare Life in making a donation. Like most nonprofits, we rely fully on charitable giving in order to continue to function. And as a side note, each of our episodes take an average of 20 hours from conception to promotion. It's a lot more than most people know. If each of our beloved listeners, you, receive just $25 in donations made in your honor, we will be funded for the rest of the year. Every little bit adds up really, really fast, and we encourage each and every one of you to participate in any way you can. You can find the fundraiser explained in full, along with tips and examples to follow, on the website, therarelife.org fundraiser. Again, that is is backslash fundraiser. Go check it out. Today's episode is sponsored by Elizabeth Lockwood. A huge thank you to her. Elizabeth is not a listener and does not have personal experience with medically complex parenting, but she works with someone who does. Brittany Stites, a longtime listener and board member, lost her son Logan partway through pregnancy after finding out that he had the same rare syndrome as Kimball, my son, Her colleagues at work heard about it, of course, but it was kind of hard to know how to best support her while also maintaining a professional relationship. When she reached out to her colleagues asking that they support The Rare Life, every one of them donated. It was a tangible way for them to show their support and love for her and everything that she's been through in a way that felt comfortable for them. The company they work for even have a charitable giving matching program, so they doubled everyone's donations their contributions have been so incredibly helpful. I tell you this story to encourage each of you to remember your colleagues during the upcoming fundraiser. You never know who would be thrilled to show up for you in this way. And don't forget to find out if your company does a matching program to make the donation go even further in helping The Rare Life continue supporting you. Again, you can head to the website therarelife.org fundraiser for ideas on how to go about this. Okay, sorry for that extra long intro. Without further ado, let's dig into this awesome episode. Hi, guys. I'm so excited to talk to you today about your perspective as the dads. I know this is a topic that a lot of people really care about. Obviously, other dads who are like, you know, where's our representation? Or, you know, like, I want to feel seen as well. But also the moms that I've interacted have been like, hey, we need a dad's episode. So I think this will be a really great opportunity for both of those things for the dads to feel seen because they deserve that as well and for the moms in the picture to also better understand the dad side of things and I also want to say right at the get-go too we need to also make sure that we're not saying that you guys represent men or represent all dads right like this is a small sampling of random dads we're just grabbing out of the crowd and so you don't need to feel like you're speaking for everyone. You just need to speak from your experience and what your experience has been with that. So first of all, can you each say your name so that everyone can hear, like match the voice with your name and then like the intro that we did of like your personal information?
0: Uh, Zach from Minnesota. We have a two-year-old daughter named Emmy. My wife and I, Megan, had her three years ago in September 21 and she just turned two a couple months ago as we were recording that.
2: I'm Derek Disney. My better half is Haley. We are a blended family, so we have three kids. Our oldest is 12 years old, Wyatt. Our middle child is eight years old, Nolan. And our youngest is Juniper, who I'll be talking quite a bit about. She's going to be four in January.
3: And then I am Justin Cheney, Madeline's husband. And we have two kids. Wendy, who is seven, and Kimball, who is five, and Kimball is medically complex.
1: Well, thanks, guys. Okay, so I just want to start out with what would you guys say has been the hardest aspect of having a child that has the medical complexities and disabilities, and how have you dealt with those things and processed them in a different way than the mom in the picture, so your wife, your partner?
2: You know, I was thinking about this question before coming here. And I, I think for me and something I still struggle with um, to this day, you know, being on this journey since my daughter was six months old. So over three years now, really mourning the loss and grief associated with all these dreams that we had for a daughter that are just never going to be realized. We had dreams of traveling and hiking and camping and you know, dragging our kid to breweries and all the things that we love to do in Oregon. And those are just so much harder and more complicated now. And and really our life has changed so significantly to be geared towards minimizing our daughter's daily seizures and making sure she's content and happy. And that radical change, there's so much of our waking hours devoted to her enjoyment, her physical therapy, her occupational therapy. It's just never feeling like a restful moment. That has been a difficult adjustment and one that I think my, my spouse has been much better suited at. She went er- much earlier on through the grieving process and mine has just been kind of a low simmer in the background for these three plus years. It, hers was more, she would suffered through it she figured out some ways to pivot that energy and that emotion into positive things and for me i just i wasn't able to and part of that is our dynamic too we both have very different strengths so my spouse is very very good at connecting with other families doing research on medications and trying some novel things we have told our neurology team my spouse it said you know have you heard about this medication can we try this one next or what do you think about this so she's very deep into that research whereas my strength lies in really suffering those seizures with my daughter i'm the one that goes to you know bed with her every night and when she wakes up in the middle of the night with seizures i'm the one there swiping her vns magnet and that just takes a different kind of strength than what she. Not saying that she can't do that or that she hasn't done that, but that's the strength that I bring to the table. And so I think just out of necessity of that daily need, I kind of buried those emotions and dealing with that grief over time. And so just kind of recently, <laughs> three years into this, really decided I I need some more positive outlooks in outlets and behaviors to better cope with what is now our new daily reality?
0: Yeah, I think what Derek's describing is probably common for a lot of dads that go through something like that. And I don't have multiple children like uh, Derek and Justin do on this episode, but I think the experience is largely the same. I think it more quickly, maybe for me and Megan, because we didn't have another child and didn't know what that normal experience was like, this became really normal life, maybe a little bit more quickly than if you've already had previous children and kind of gone through it. We had a joke <laughs> early on after Emmy was born that I still had the How to Be a Dad book that I hadn't read yet. She was two and a half months premature. And so we kind of learned by doing, but it turns out there was really nothing in that book or at least very little of it that would have helped in our particular situation. So maybe it's a good thing I didn't spend my time reading it. Megan was really ready to be a mom. She's an amazing mother and has been from day one, despite some really difficult circumstances. And so when when Emmy was born and we knew there were some issues, like I mentioned, she was two and a half months premature. It took us about a year to land on her final diagnosis and realize that this was going to be a lifelong issue. But My goal from day one was to let Megan be a mom, to make her time in the hospital just be about her and Emmy. Megan was a registered nurse before Emmy was born, and now she's back in nurse practitioner school. So she had a huge head start in a lot of what we were talking to the doctors and the nurses about. So a lot of her late nights were spent educating me about what was said throughout all our appointments throughout the day. But it made sense for us, for her to be in a lot of those conversations and be really present at the hospital because she understood a lot of what was happening, whereas I was I was doing a lot of learning. But then there's this whole separate side of life. Even without kids, we were two and a half hours away from our hometown where Emmy was being cared for. And so I had to go back to work my employer was awesome, let me do a lot of work remotely, but there were still trips back and forth to our hometown for that. We had a house at home, we had a dog at home, we had other responsibilities, even though Emmy was was definitely the most important. And so my goal was to make it so that Megan didn't have to worry about any of that, and that she could just be 100% worried about what was happening with Emmy's treatment in the early days. And I think if we had to do it again, we would probably end up doing something similar, but our experiences were very different because she felt the entire world was what was happening in that hospital room. And I got some distraction, right? When I was at work or when I was dealing with the insurance company or when I was trying to get bills paid or going home to make sure the dog was taken care of. Those were distractions and times for me to spend my mental energy away from what was happening in the hospital, whereas Megan didn't get a lot of that in the early going. And so that led to a lot of conversation and quite honestly, a lot of resentment from both sides, because I felt like maybe I wasn't being the dad that I should be or getting a chance to do that because I had to take care of all the other things that were going on in our life and Megan was feeling like hey I want to leave I want to go home and see the dog and I don't want to be here 24 7 and so we had to find that balance as we went through things we ended up spending about 120 days in the NICU after Emmy was born and so it was a long haul in the hospital just to get her past that prematurity stage to a point where we could take her home. And we've done better with it, but uh, I think a lot of dads out there probably feel the pressures of the outside world as well as what's happening with their child. Whereas maybe more of the moms are more focused on what's happening with the child and not so much what's going on. And that might vary family to family, but for us, that was, a navigational point that was really tough to sort out about how we're going to balance all the things that were happening in our life and kind of deal with uh with this new normal
1: so i i love that you shared that perspective because from my experience in talking to moms usually about this type of thing it does seem like that's pretty typical this like experience where the mom and the child are like so intimately entwined and like going to the hospital like you said and giving them cares and things like that. And then the dad is kind of like the supportive role, right, of like that little unit to like keep that going, sustaining. Like you said, she couldn't go off and take care of the household and things like that because so much was asked of caring for Emmy and that made sense for you guys for her to be the one doing that. And I guess, Zach, this is a question for you and then you guys can jump in as well. But you kind of mentioned that you had a little bit of resentment of like, where's my role as the dad, right? Like this relationship of not just supporting this unit of like mom and child, but like, my relationship with Emmy personally what was that processing like like when did you feel like you were able to really connect with her
0: it honestly took some time I mean obviously you have nothing but the most love in the world that you've ever felt from day one but then like Derek was talking about the picture of what you're thinking about is so different and I think that whether it be Some can call it optimism. Some could probably call it being really naive or just not wanting to accept what was happening in front of me. But I, for whatever reason, in the first six months to a year, took a really optimistic view of this is prematurity. This is gonna get figured out and we're gonna go on to have a really typical, not medically complex child. And so I let myself, much of that first year, still think about, the all-American family, right? And that you know, Emmy was not gonna have these long-term issues and that we were gonna get through this and the storm was gonna pass and all these things. And, and I think Megan had a much more realistic view, maybe it's because of her background as a nurse, about what our future was gonna look like. And so I think it took some time for me to, to really fit myself into what our family was becoming honestly, I listened to one of your episodes. I forget her name, but the mom was talking about the concept of radical acceptance in that episode. And that honestly really helped me get closer to that at that time, because it was a matter of accepting what was happening in front of us. And the fact that we spent so much time in the hospital. And then when we went home with Emmy for the first time, it was just an extension of the hospital. And so I think for dads like me, it might take some time to figure out how you can fit yourself into that family structure where you're not going to be chasing Emmy around the yard and you're not going to be wrestling with her on the bed. And it's all these things that you think about when you're pregnant, especially for the first time of this is what it's going to be like to be a dad. And then all of a sudden, like Derek was talking about, it's kind of. Taken away from you and changed to where you have to be a different kind of dad. And I think for me, it took some time to understand that. And thankfully, you know, I've got a really amazing wife who gave me the time and the space to figure that out. Now, like I said, Emmy's two, and we've built a really normal feeling life for ourselves. It's different than some of our friends who have kids of around the same age, but this is just who we are now. And it just took a little bit longer, I think, to get me to a point where I could be that functioning, contributing member and not just be, you know, on the outside looking in almost, which is what it felt like. Megan assured me that that's not what it was in the opening months, but that's honestly what it felt like to me is that I was just observing my family and not really getting a chance to really make the kind of impact or the kind of impression that I wanted to, you know, as a first-time dad. And I think that's just part of the grieving process. And once you get past it, then you can really start to figure out how you fit into that family structure.
3: I think it's also partially, maybe it's because it's more common for men, or maybe it's the role of, in our family, I was the provider at the time. Maddie was just taking care of our daughter, Wendy, in our home and other things, so she didn't have a job. So we got the diagnosis for Kimball before he was born. And so by the time he was actually born, I feel like Maddie was so emotionally invested that I felt like almost we had to specialize where it was like, okay, she's got it covered emotionally. Like she's making sure that he's okay. And like really focusing on like, is Kimball taken care of? And I almost felt like, okay, well, I guess my role is going to be more about like things like okay, we gotta make sure that insurance is working here. We gotta make sure that like, okay, yeah, we've got rides up to the hospital. We've got this taken care of and parents here. And I just felt like, almost like we were specializing and and she had the strong suit of the emotional, like focusing on people. And I was like, okay, then I'm gonna take on the things. And so I feel like by the time he was born, I had already kind of slipped into that role. And because Maddie's, our emotions in general, were kind of all over the place trying to figure out what was going on. Although he had his diagnosis beforehand, we didn't know all the implications of what that would mean. And some of the, I guess, conditions of we still didn't get diagnosed till after. So I felt like our emotions were in swing, but because her emotions were in swing so much dealing with all these like changes of, oh no, he's actually hard of hearing and he has a visual impairment and this and that. But I felt like I almost took my emotions out to try and add stability to like, okay, well, like, adding my emotions isn't going to help the situation. And so like, almost felt like a defensive situation of like, okay, well, like, I'll get to mine when we have time. But for now, it's like, I just need to help stabilize as much as I can. And for a time, I felt like it was a, uh, am I a monster? Am I like, hiding my feelings? But like, looking back, I think it was more of, No, I was trying to be strategic, maybe without even thinking about it, of how do I help stabilize my family in this uncertain time?
2: It's interesting that you say that because my spouse, especially early on when we were coping with this, um, she would have days where she would just have to be in bed all day and cry. And that was what she needed. And I I would call it puddle mode. I'd be like, you know, if you need a puddle mode day, like go take a puddle mode day and I'll handle the other things. I just never quite needed a puddle day in the same way that she did, but we did appreciate and recognize we both couldn't take that puddle day at the same time. (laughs) So I think whether it's explicitly or just kind of unconsciously sorted out, you just... you have a good relationship as a foundation, um, you you find a way to sort out who's going to be in a puddle that day.
0: One of the best things is when you do have some of those early defined roles, and even as you get later on, but especially in the early days is when you're forced to switch roles. And that's honestly, when I started to feel most like a dad in the early going of most like okay i'm here and i'm in it and i can do it and i've got this connection with my daughter was when we finally convinced megan it took a couple weeks after emmy was born to tell her go have an overnight trip at home go see the dogs go see your parents you know leave this to us we got this and that happened more and more because we were there for so long but those were the nights and the days that I started to feel more comfortable in my role as dad and not just as support system because Megan wasn't there. And so when she was there, it was really important for Megan to get skin to skin and for Megan to feel comfortable in what we were doing with medications and things like that. But when all of a sudden she's not there and you're kind of forced into that role, that's when you start to feel more like dad and less just like, somebody who's keeping the trains on time, you know, outside the hospital room. And so it was interesting to see when those roles were reversed, you know, how quickly you just adapt to, to what's needed in that situation.
1: And I think that's so important because I know as like moms, like a lot of us have to let go of this sense of control, right? Or like, okay, I'm going to trust that like, you know, Zach can handle it. Like Zach can take care of Emmy and i think that's so important for like moms who are listening right now to be like yes like you need to relinquish that at least to some extent to step out of it i think that's so important for both partners as you said like for Megan to have that breather and for you to really step in and come into your own like i don't justin like that was hard like i was always doing the medical cares and things but like there were times where, like i'm going to an exercise class or i'm going to like just completely be a mess and so him taking over both the kids, you know, by himself while I was gone, even though it was just an hour at a time, those little like steps of like handing over some of those roles and those responsibilities is so healthy for everyone involved.
2: And so when Juniper was initially diagnosed and then not too much later after that, a couple of months down the road into a couple of different treatments, we were in and out of the hospital a lot spent significant time. And Juniper has had two brain surgeries. First was a resection. The second was an anatomical hemispherectomy or removal of the remaining right hemisphere that hadn't been taken in the first surgery. Haley would, of course, know the right terminology for that. (laughs) I called it anatomical hemispherectomy. (laughs) I know that's not right, but (laughs) in any event, so we, we spent significant time there. It's not just playing with your child pre-surgery and entertaining them for, you know, a week stretch at a time while they have EEG leads taped to their head, right? That is its own personal hell in and of itself. But post-surgery for us was very difficult as well. And we, especially for the second surgery, Haley and I determined that Haley would spend the week pre-surgery entertaining her because that's one of her strengths. And then I would spend the week post-surgery with juniper in recovery and that's because when we we're at ucla the COVID policy was you couldn't have two parents at the same time so it wasn't that we didn't both want to be there it was that the hospital prohibited it so we had to kind of divide and conquer and cater to our strengths and it was really interesting you mentioned like the kind of moms feel this individual pressure and a need to kind of let go of that Haley received many, many messages from people she didn't even really know through social media saying, how could you, I don't want to say abandon your child, but more or less like putting pressure on her, like a child needs their mother when they're recovering. And she's like, no, my husband's got this. Like he's better equipped in this scenario to handle. She had some really ugly complications with her first surgery and we were worried that that was going to happen again. And so like she was having vocal seizures and had to have high load rescue meds and emergency CT scans and projectile vomiting and almost, you know, choked on her vomit. And, you know, I jumped into action. And so that's why we decided I would be the one to be there post-surgery in case that happened again. And it's just, I wish mothers would appreciate and recognize the value of their spouse. It doesn't have to be all about this perception you got to do what's best for your relationship and for your child it's not not just what society thinks our role should be
0: and you really should throw the term mom and dad out the window when you're talking about stuff like that i know it's easy to throw that around but it really should just be whoever the primary caretaker is and then whoever isn't in that role in the relationship because it could be dads who are there from day one and are more ready to be dads than the moms are. That situation exists. The moms could be the one going back to work. It just so happens that in our situation, it's a more traditional gender split, but it's not always like that for sure.
1: Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. That's really important to acknowledge. Well, I have a question too. I've been so curious about this. I think I've brought it up like even in episodes, but I'm interviewing a mom. So I'm like, okay, I want to ask a dad this. And Derek, this may not be as pertinent to your situation, just because it sounds like you got your diagnosis a little bit later with Juniper, but when your wives were having the baby, right? So like, I'll speak from our experience. So for Justin, like I had Kimball and then they whisked him off and Justin was the one watching all that. And he was the one who went off to the NICU with him to be there while they stabilized him while they I was in recovery, right? So I'm like, I'm picturing these dads that are kind of witnessing this thing happening, To obviously their partner who they hopefully really love, and then this child that they really love, and kind of seeing it from that perspective the birth experience. Like, what has that been like for you guys, or what was that like, I guess?
0: Uh, It's been repressed. So, thanks for bringing it up. No, it was, (laughs) uh, we had a pretty traumatic birth experience. Megan's water broke two and a half months, about the 28 week mark, and we were about two and a half hours away from our hometown, and we went to the hospital. They told us that they were going to try and keep her pregnant until 32 weeks to let Emmy's lungs develop to the proper size and strength. We ended up having Emmy three days later at 28 weeks, six days. So already things weren't going according to plan, and they went further away from the plan when they rushed Megan to the OR at about 4 a.m. and did an emergency C-section, so... For three or four days, we were in the hospital and the plan was when baby comes, I'll get to go with her, this is the plan, this is who's going to do it. It ended up becoming a more emergency situation than that. They took Megan and left me in the room. We've argued for two years about who had it worse. I think certainly mom had it worse in that situation, but being the one who's awake and not knowing what they're doing, why they're doing it. What the outcome is going to be. At this point, we still hadn't even received the diagnosis of long term medical complexities. We were just worried about prematurity. Emmy was born, if anybody's familiar with the term APGAR score, it's something that they give babies right when they're born. I believe it's on a scale of one to 10. It might be one to five, but anyway, Emmy was a one. She needed four or five minutes of CPR when she was born. They got her heart back going. And this is really the first and only time since Hemi's been born that I felt really alone. But the doctor came in and Megan went to recovery, told me that Emmy had been born, brought me to see her. She obviously looked pretty awful and we weren't sure what was gonna happen. And that was my first experience going through medical fatherhood without Megan by my side to guide me through the doctor at the end of explaining kind of what had happened, asked me if I had any questions. And I think all I could do was stare at him because I think any first time dad has questions, certainly if it happens like that, you've got more questions. And so then they brought Emmy into the NICU, got her situated. Megan woke up and we had to tell her kind of what had happened and what the situation was. And less than 24 hours later, Emmy coded when they tried to extubate her. So it was a really rough first 24 to 48 hours for us. And things have certainly gotten better since then, but it was a really traumatic welcome to parenthood for us. And I think that only contributed to the early grieving process. both of us when it was a a pretty big shock to the system that this wasn't going to be what we expected and at that time you're just in it and you have no other choice but to get up the next day and go back and try to get through it and do the best that you can and so honestly we have maybe a different perspective because of that you know the first two to three weeks of emmy's life really felt like. Life or death. And we had had a miscarriage in our first try at pregnancy before Emmy. So the fact that she just turned to the fact that she's doing better, maybe not perfect or without medical issues, but to us, this is great. You know, we have a, a much different perspective on her issues because we feel like we have a handle on them. We feel like we have a path to help her forward. We've reached that point of radical acceptance with Emmy's life, and we can now devote our time and energy to making it the best life that she can live. We talked a lot in the early going to doctors who mentioned, We can't tell you what Emmy's going to be like when she grows up. We can only tell you that you can help maximize her potential. We want her to reach whatever her potential is, we want her to reach it. And that felt like a really frustrating answer in the first month because you're like, Come on, give me some idea of what it's going to be like. Is it going to be like we thought or is it going to be way different? And two years removed from that, you realize that that's all you can do is help them reach the potential that they have, maximize what they can do in this life and do your best to help them live a meaningful life. No matter what their issues are, no matter what their can or can'ts are, but that takes time. I mean, it was really frustrating in the opening months because we didn't have answers and we still don't have answers about what that potential is, but we've come to accept that Emmy will show us where the finish line to this is. We don't know it yet. She doesn't know it yet, but we're comfortable not knowing and we're just along for the ride, which is... of a fun place to be for us so we're looking forward to what comes next
3: yeah it was interesting so in general with us i am not familiar with the medical world like no one in my family was a doctor or a nurse we didn't go to the hospital much growing up so being in the NICU having to make decisions talking to doctors and nurses not knowing if what we were experiencing was Normal, or if, like, is that something I should be like talking to someone about? Or, like, there are just so many things going on. I'm already indecisive, I don't know the medical world for me. It was so frustrating and like unknown to me, and I felt so uncomfortable in the situation. That I also, for us, I was like, I love my wife and my family, but like, I feel so unable to do anything in this situation. I feel like I almost like not like shut down, but was like, there's only so much I can do. I can try and be there for my wife. But like, the doctor comes around and asks us decisions or tries to update us on like, oh, yeah, this blew out or the pick line didn't work or this or that. And I'm just like, okay, like, do what you need. I don't know. I feel like in some areas, like, we'd have like other people in the NICU. And I'm like, wow, they seem like they know what's going on. And maybe they were just there longer. I'm not sure what, but I was like, I just felt so out of my realm that for me, even though we had a heads up before he was born that he was going to have issues, I was very much out of my realm, felt very uncomfortable in the whole situation that we had. And it was pretty disorienting for me, both because we already had a child and I had some expectation of like how this would go. And for Wendy, when she was born, we were living with family. Now we were living in a state and not living within 45 minutes of any family. So we're in a different state at this point. And it was just so, I felt frustrated because I thought I was a good dad. And I'm not saying I'm not a good dad. I think I'm still a great dad. But like, I felt like I wasn't that great of a dad because of how I responded in that situation, because I felt like so out of control of what was going on that like, just talking to the dads out there and you guys like yeah you're not a bad dad just because like it's really hard to handle this life and like you're not an expert and none of us are in this realm so
2: yeah for sure we had a very different initial experience than you guys we had a very normal pregnancy very normal birth and normal really first six months besides the start of covid and then, you know, she started manifesting head drops and then it got more frequent. I mean, it started like once every couple of weeks and then started progressing to more and more frequent, more of the typical quintessential jackknife pose for infantile spasms. And it was very frustrating that the first four doctors, including two emergency room doctors that we saw said yeah we think it's neurological but it's not an emergency meet with your regular pediatrician and as we're in the emergency room i was googling like the motion the head drop jackknife pose uncovered you know all these links about infantile spasms and thank god some information about how it is a medical emergency and to go to a children's hospital as soon as possible and so that's what we did and that's where we got our diagnosis and initial rounds of treatment and our doctors were saying you know she our daughter juniper presents so well and they can't find really evidence of what is causing it and so they thought she would respond quickly to the first treatment i remember asking you know it's funny what you latch onto at the beginning, right? I was so naive. And I think Haley had a better idea at the outset how big of a (laughs) nuclear bomb this was. But I was like, you know, can she still have the potential to be in a regular classroom? And they're like, oh yeah, the head of the pediatric neurology department was like, yeah, certainly that's not ruled out at this point. And I just had all these hopes and dreams of things that we're going to do together. And just as we tried more and more treatments and surgeries, those kind of kept falling away. I very much felt like it's interesting, Zach, your perspective, because I very much felt like this like apple and it was being whittled down more and more and more of what's possible. Whereas I think your viewpoint is a much more healthier one, which is like, this is the reality that we have. And this is great. We're going to work with this. And this is a beautiful gift that we've been given and we're going to lean into this. I'm not saying that I don't appreciate my daughter and what she can do. She is further developed than a lot of my friends' kids that I've met. And I don't take that for granted any day. It's an up and down cycle too. It's not something that's static. My daughter does progress, albeit at a glacial pace, but she does. And she does regress. You know, right now we're fighting... She doesn't want to use her AC device at all. And I think the other thing for us that I don't know where you guys are with your kids, but Juniper's never really been stable. The longest she's ever had seizure-free was six weeks. And so we've had, you know, hundreds, hundreds of seizures every single day, more or less her entire life starting at six months. And so I don't feel there's ever this place of stability of like, okay, now we have a routine, she's going to have seizures at this time, so we can go do things here, we can go to the beach. We used to say she can have seizures at the beach or she can have seizures at home, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Again, we were naive at the start, or even, you know, six months, a year ago. It's just so much easier and manageable emotionally and physically for us and Juniper to kind of maximize the comfort and The reliability and the familiarity of surroundings, which I've never been a homebody before, but we've had to we've had to shift and adapt and become that. Yeah, it's just fascinating and tragic and hopeful all at the same time.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. And Derek, I also, not to put you on the spot, but one of the reasons I wanted you involved in this conversation is I loved this post that Haley made, your wife for those who don't know, (laughs) about how you've gone to couples counseling as kind of this preventative, like we're not in like this really bad spot, but like this has been really hard to work through this. We're grieving in different ways. We're going to be proactive and make sure we're like working through this. Like, is that something you are like recommend? Like, is that something that has been really helpful for you guys?
2: 100%. Yeah. Shout out to Kale, by the way. He is an amazing (laughs) counselor in I will tell you, I've seen, throughout the years, I've seen individual counselors. I was previously married and tried couples counseling then too. And I can tell you, there are a lot of terrible therapists out there, terrible. And it is very difficult to find the diamond in the rough that has similar values and has techniques and methods that really work for you. We found that, thankfully, mercifully, I don't want to say we're in a bad spot. We weren't ever really in a bad spot, but we were starting to see more and more conflict. And Haley is a communications professor, communication professor. It's not plural, communication. <laughs> <laughs> and she sees conflict as opportunity for growth. But we were we were getting into this spiral of conflict and not hearing each other, not being able to resolve that and grow from those conflicts with each other without professional assistance. And so thankfully we stumbled upon it was a total cold call that we initiated this with this therapist named Kale. And he's just been amazing. He's very what I found for us is really important that someone that calls us on our shit. So he, you know, is not placating or platitudes. He's kind of goofy, but we're super goofy. So we relate to that. And he is very cerebral as well. He describes, you know, the, it's not hidden knowledge. He's like, you know, I wonder if I'm applying the like Gottman method to this and this. And that relates a lot to Haley. Haley understands that because she teaches some of these same principles, but to hear it from an external party does the trick for us. And so we're we're always better after therapy sessions. And so we do it every two weeks and I don't think we're ever gonna stop because it's just been so helpful. And unfortunately, statistically, no matter how solid your relationship is, parents of medical complex kids have like 75% or some horrifying statistic for not staying together long-term. And that's really sad. And I think it's so important to be proactive about that rather than reactive because when you're reactive, some damage has already been done. You know, whether you can overcome that and grow from that really depends on how deep those cuts were.
1: Yeah, I really appreciate that. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to end with each of you taking a few minutes to speak to the dads listening right now. I know that each of you have shared really important perspectives and advice and things for dads, but what is one last thing you would like to leave with them?
0: The thing that comes most often to mind when people talk about situations like ours, and we've had a really good support system, whether it's family members, friends, community members, who have helped us through this journey, is that a reminder that Megan and I have to give ourselves some grace and allow yourself the space to think that this is unfair and to think that it should be different and to wish that it was different. If you don't allow yourself to feel those emotions and get them out and then move on, it's going to create a lot of the conflict that Derek's talking about. And it's going to come out in really unhealthy ways, whether it's just personally, you're not eating right, sleeping, drinking too much, whatever it is, or it's going to come out at your partner and you're yelling about things that you wouldn't normally yell about, or you're picking fights that you wouldn't normally pick. And I think all of that for us, for Megan and I can be traced back to, are you actually dealing with your emotions as they come? Cause as Derek said, this is a really up and down journey. You know, there's some days that are better than others. There's some days where you're going to be more naturally optimistic and you're going to want to go to the beach and, there's gonna be some days where you say, I don't wanna leave the house. I don't wanna be around people. I don't want them to be staring. I don't want them to be wondering what's going on. I don't wanna answer questions, but those days come and go and and hopefully you have more good days than bad days. And it gets easier with time as you get more settled into your new situation. But I think the the weird thing about being a medically complex family is that you live in a really weird dichotomy of emotions where you would do anything to take away what your child is dealing with and to just make them a really typical kid and your family really typical and the thing that we think about when we think about families. But at the same time, at least for Megan and I, we don't want to take away who Emmy is. We don't want to take away the things that she's taught us about life and about ourselves. And most of all, we don't want her to grow up thinking that there's something wrong with her that needs to be fixed. And I think that is what we keep coming back to whenever we talk about this situation is if we want her to grow up and to not think that there's something broken inside her, first, we need to accept it and we need to attack this life like this is our reality. And just like anybody else with any other situation, we are going to make the best of the cards that we were given. And that's easier said than done, but that's been our approach. And I think it's helped a lot to think about what our feelings and our attitudes toward this situation are going to mean for Emmy when she's old enough to hopefully understand them and make her own opinions of who she is and where she fits within the world and so i think the biggest piece of advice we could ever have for people going through it is just to allow yourself the space to feel all the emotions you're going to feel happiness you're going to feel sadness anger frustration and they're all okay they're all natural they're all understandable and really they're all necessary at the beginning when we were going through the initial storm, I was a lot like Derek and Justin where I tried to maybe shelter my emotions away because I was really focused on what needed to be done, on the tasks that needed to be completed. I didn't want people to have to worry about me. I wanted them to worry about Megan and about Emmy, and I didn't want to be an added stressor for anybody in our lives. As that went on, that's a really unsustainable and almost unhealthy attitude to take towards things. But I think it is a pretty natural defense mechanism, probably for a lot of dads uh, in the early going. And so now that you're further away from it, you can take the time to process your emotions as they come. And I think that in the end, you're a much better father, you're a much better husband, and just a much better person overall if you're able to do that.
1: I Love us so much,
2: yeah. Beating off of what Zach said, three parting points. One, I think I focused on my tasks, what I needed to do as a dad you know, be there for Juniper throughout the night when she has seizures the most, really handle that, handle medications. And through that, I spent years disassociating, and I think not dealing with those emotions is a defense mechanism that's okay in the short term don't do what i did don't do it long term because it can lead to some unhealthy coping mechanisms and you got to deal with it one way or another you're going to deal with it you might as well do it intentionally before it becomes an issue and sabotages the rest of your life the other thing i would encourage other dads to do is form a tribe form a community i am so lucky and fortunate that really through haley met some other dads Mark James and Bud that I talk to on a daily basis we have a text message chain that we provide each other entertainment and commiserate and we talk about you know problems that we all face as husbands and fathers and you know how we can relate like as my child gets bigger how are we going to get the wheelchair in and out of our Toyota Sienna? Like, <laughs> hey, you know, it's physically heavy and my daughter is heavy and my spouse can't do it. Like, what are we going to do? And so we brainstorm. But that support system is critical. And I hope you all find your respective Mark James and buds out there in the world because they were a game changer for me to find those guys.
1: What is your advice? Just like sprouting off that and then you can get back to your other points. But like, if there's a dad listening, like, You mentioned Haley helped you with that, but how would you recommend if someone's like, oh, I need that in my life? Yeah,
2: that's interesting. I would say reach out maybe to some more prominent people on Instagram in the disability community. And for us, it was really important to connect that we all have kids with infantile spasms and many other forms of epilepsy as well. But that was a commonality. And, you know, our kids are all different ages, but similar medical treatments, medications, and issues that we're facing. I would probably track down someone on social media that has a similar condition to your child and then reach out to them and say, hey, I could really use the sports system. Do you know anyone I could be, you know, in regular touch with? And that's really what Haley did for me. She took really two other dads, well, actually their spouses had reached out to her and said, hey, do you know anyone and Haley offered me? to be a contact for them and then we folded in bud and that that was a great thing too so reach out to someone that you're already aware is facing it and maybe they themselves are willing to be that or know someone who is
1: i really like that because it also feels a little less vulnerable than being like hey do you want to text me yeah. like to be in contact but it's like do you know anyone so they can totally say oh i will and you know they could also just like oh joe schmo over here can you know so i really like that as a tactic to do that thank you for sharing that.
2: yeah the other weird thing is that like particularly in my town i'm sort of aware of like three or four other families that have kids with infantile spasms but i don't know who they are i've only heard allusions to them from juniper's physical therapy team or pediatrician but because of hipaa they can't share that information so even though there are people similarly situated in my own community I will never get to know them because of that restriction. And so
1: do you want to know a hack there? Yeah. Okay. This is what I've done before. When I like, I'll hear them talking about like the elusive, like other families, (laughs) you can tell them, here's my number. Can you give it to them and tell them that they can text me if they want to connect? And that way they are not violating HIPAA because you're giving the information instead of asking the information. So that's like a little tidbit to throw out there.
2: We've tried that and it didn't.
1: Oh, you have? It didn't work? But I appreciate
2: that. I hope that does work for someone else. That's a bummer. Yeah. Was that
1: the physician wouldn't do it or the parents never ended up texting you?
2: Who knows? I mean, they took our number and said they would give it out, but nothing ever came.
1: Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) That's a bummer. Yeah.
2: That's
0: what we've done. That's what's worked for us is just
2: go the other way with it. So
1: So sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. I guess that's the statistics there.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. My tribe you know, I have one dad in Pittsburgh, one in Denver and one in Los Angeles. So I should say orange. He doesn't like to be (laughs) not Los Angeles, orange, (laughs) California. So, you know, we're all all over the map and we, we make time. We just had a a dad's trip where we spent a long weekend together in orange.
1: Fun. uh, Which
2: was great. But the last, the very last point I want to make is also use tools to make your life easier and better suited to this new reality that you have. So for example, my spouse and I really love camping and backpacking, and that was no longer reality for us. We used our daughter's Make-A-Wish to get a trailer, and my daughter loves it. We are now able to enjoy the outdoors again, sit by the fire, watch a fire, and then go sleep in a comfortable camper where we have a sound machine and air conditioning and heat. And the other thing I have my eye on is called a huckleberry. It's basically a I don't want to say rickshaw, but it's basically a trailer with a single wheel with like a harness attachment that you can take kids. I really love hiking. And so I can't wait to take my daughter, Juniper, hiking with this device so that we can enjoy the outdoors, you know, go for a couple mile hike where I can't really carry her in the backpack anymore because she's too heavy. And so there are devices out there for you to kind of adapt the life that you want with the life that you have. That's parting words. Love that so much.
3: I think both Derek and Zach have actually covered a lot of the thoughts that I had. And I think life is just brutal. Marriage can be hard without this complexity. And adding this amount of weight on your shoulders, it can go from either extreme to anywhere in the middle of ripping you guys apart to welding you guys together And just try so hard not to let it rip you guys apart because it can be so amazing if you guys can just like put your backs together and take on the world and take on these really hard things. And this can be like, it can be such a blessing for you, but it's so hard and it's understandable if you don't have the strength, but like if you can like rip away a little bit of your pride and try and rely on others, whether it's a friend or a therapist or whoever it is, like try and get help so that. That you can make it through because it can be so brutal, but like you can do it. There is support out there if, if you'll just let down your pride and reach out. So I back both what Zach and Derek said.
1: I love that. Well, thank you so much, you guys. This was such a joy. Pretty much everything you guys are saying, I was like, oh, everyone's going to love this. They're going to love this. And I love, especially picturing those dads listening and feeling very seen right now and supported by each one of you. So thank you so much for sharing.
0: Yeah. yeah thanks for having us thank you it's fun
1: you can find adorable photos of each of these dads with their families on the website therarelife.org. and while you're there don't forget to check out our page all about our upcoming fundraiser the url for that is is backslash fundraiser a huge thank you to each of the dads participating and to our team who packaged it all up and got it ready to be listened to including and especially Alyssa Nutile, who does a little bit of everything for The Rare Life. And another thank you to Elizabeth Lockwood for her generous donation that made today's episode possible. Join us next week for an episode all about sex. Amanda Griffith-Atkins, favorite repeat guest, and I will read through thoughts from listeners on ways their sexual intimacy with their partners have been negatively impacted by the stressors of having medically complex children, as well as tips from Amanda as a therapist on how we can improve that area of our lives. Don't miss this one. See you then.